Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, I've chosen to uh, consider this uh, fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, Forgive Us Our Debts, in connection with Psalm 143. And I've chosen to do that especially because of verse 2 in that psalm. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. Now there is additional material in this psalm, as we cannot fail to notice if we take a cursory glance at it. In verses 3 and 4, David prays about his enemies and complains about what his enemies are doing to him. And in verses 7 to 12, we find a whole series of other petitions. Uh, in addition to that petition which we find in verse 2. And so we're going to have to see all of this together, but I do think that verse 2 is the main petition of this psalm, and that it's legitimate to see the rest of the psalm in the light of that main petition. Do not enter into judgment with your servant. So we're going to... uh, Consider the psalm under the theme, Praying for Release from Judgment. And we're going to consider first verse 1, Hear my prayer. Then verses 2 to 4, Enter not into judgment. And finally, verses 5 to 12, uh, I spread out my hands to you. Now, that verse 1 here in the psalm is very similar in many respects, to other psalms, the beginnings of other psalms. You find this quite often in the psalms, that when it's a petitionary psalm, a a psalm of prayer and supplication, the psalmist very often begins with this kind of request, Hear my prayer, O Lord. But there are some things we want to notice about this particular request. In the first place, he repeats the same idea basically three times here. Hear my prayer, give ear to my supplications, in your faithfulness, answer me. And as we look at those three petitions, we get a sense of urgency about the psalmist's request, about David's request here. He repeats the same thing essentially three times. But we also see, I think, as we look at those three petitions together, a stepping up of intensity in his prayers here. He begins with the simple word, hear, listen to what I'm saying to you. But in the next line, he says, give ear. And I think there's a little bit more force, a little bit more urgency in that word. That is, pay attention, pay close attention. Do not let your attention attention wander away from me while I am uttering this prayer to you. And finally, he adds, not only hear and give ear, but also answer me, I need an answer to my prayer. You see that same stepping up of intensity, I think, in the two words in lines one and two, prayer and supplications. The word prayer can mean a prayer of petition, but it can also mean a prayer of praise and adoration. But the second word is a word which very much focuses on the idea of petition, of course. Give ear to my supplications. In fact, urgent petition. And that word appears in the plural, so that he feels an urgency not only to bring a plea to the Lord, but he has multiple pleas to bring to the Lord. If you go back to Psalm 142, verse 1, you will see that there he uses the same word, but in the singular, with my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. So there's urgency here. But this third thing that we want to notice is that he appeals in this third part of the verse to the faithfulness and righteousness of the Lord. Now, it is, of course, obvious that he does not here appeal to anything in himself as the reason why the Lord should hear and answer him. He appeals not to what is in himself, but he appeals to who the Lord is, what the Lord has revealed about himself, the characteristics or attributes of the Lord are the basis for his prayer and for his expectation of being heard. First of all, then, he talks about the faithfulness of the Lord. 
And what he means by the faithfulness of the Lord is, of course, simply that the Lord does not change towards his people. He has made himself their God. He has spoken to them his promises. He has fulfilled those promises in many respects. He has done many good things for them in the past. And David asks him then to uh, continue to deal with him in that same way that he has dealt with his people and with David himself in the past. Keep those promises. Don't change towards me, he says. Be faithful even though I change towards you, even though I am often unfaithful to you. Do not be unfaithful to me. And that faithfulness of the Lord is rooted in the Lord's own attribute of immutability. He is the Lord who does not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. So it's this that he appeals to. Answer me because you are the one who is faithful, because you do not change towards me and towards your people. But he also appeals here, and this is a somewhat unusual thing, he also appeals to the righteousness of the Lord. Answer me in your faithfulness and in your righteousness. Now I think that that word righteousness here is key to the understanding of the psalm. And what I want to do is reserve part of our discussion for, of that word righteousness until towards the end of our discussion of this psalm. Because that word righteous and righteousness appears a couple more times in the psalm. In verse 2, in your sight no one living is righteous. And in verse 11, for your righteousness sake, bring my soul out of trouble. But what we need to point out here, I think, is this. That David is asking for an answer to his prayer on the basis of God's righteousness. He is saying to God, because you are righteous, answer me. What does he mean by that? Because you are righteous, answer me. Well, part of what he means, people of God, is that he can't expect any answer from the Lord apart from the Lord's righteousness. This is a characteristic of God's being, an attribute that belongs to him and which he can never deny. And so if David can get any answer from him, that answer is going to have to be a righteous answer. God will never answer him in conflict with his own righteousness. And whether that righteousness works against him or for him, and of course it's obvious that David wants it to work for him, that righteousness will be characteristic of God's answer to him. And David founds his prayer on that righteousness, and we'll come back to that, as I said, as we work our way through this psalm, but he founds his prayer on that righteousness of God, and he wants a righteous answer from God. Not an answer that is inconsistent with God's own being, but an answer that is righteous. And he wants that kind of answer, of course, because that will mean for him that God cannot deal with him in any other way. If it is according to his righteousness that he gives answer, then that answer will be an answer which cannot be changed, which must stand, which must be firmly founded in the character of God himself. No other way that David can expect an answer which will be uh, a long-term answer to his problem. So those two things then. Now let's turn to verse 2 and look at and 3 and 4 as well, taking those verses together, and look at his prayer there, his petition. His main petition, that what he wants the Lord to hear, the supplication that he wants the Lord to hear first, is do not 
enter into judgment with your servant. For in your sight, no one living is righteous. It's very obvious here that David is oppressed with the knowledge of his sin and with the certainty in his own soul that he is worthy of the judgment of God. That if God were to take him into his judgment, make him stand before him by himself, that God would certainly find him guilty and condemn him to everlasting torment. And so what David says is, don't bring me into judgment. Don't make me stand before you. Don't look into my life and see whether I have sinned or not. Because if you do, if you look at me in that way, if you bring me into judgment, I will certainly be found guilty. No one living is righteous in your sight. Not just me, but no one living is righteous in your sight. This is a universal problem, David is saying. It's a universal problem, but it's a universal problem that is also my problem. That if I were to stand in your judgment, I would certainly be found guilty. God is the lawgiver. God in his law has required obedience of all men to that law. God has said in that law that he will surely punish disobedience. He has spoken his curses, voluminous curses, against those who disobey. And we have disobeyed. And the judgment means that we will certainly never be found righteous in the sight of God. Now this is exactly part of the problem that David has then as we look at those first two verses. He says, answer me in your righteousness. And yet, if the Lord comes in his righteousness to David, David says, in your sight, no one living is justified. This is the desperate problem which David faces here. He knows that he has to have an answer of righteousness. There's no other answer that will be any good to him except an answer of righteousness. And yet, if he's given an answer of righteousness, it will be condemnation for him. In the light of that, it's very striking that David even dares to utter this prayer to the Lord. Answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one can be righteous in your sight. He's aware of his sin. He's aware of his damn worthiness. He's aware of the righteousness of God which must be against him. And so he says, enter not into judgment with your servant. There's another part to this in verses 3 and 4 that we have to consider here. Suddenly in verse 3, David turns to talking about his enemies and complaining to God about his enemies. And the question that comes to mind, of course, is why bring that in? He's concerned about his sin in verse 2. And then suddenly in verse 3, he's talking about his enemies. Not only is he talking about his enemies, but he very closely connects that complaint about his enemies with his petition, enter not into judgment. For, he says, the enemy has persecuted my soul. What's the point? Why bring in enemies? By the way, he does this also in Psalm 38, a psalm, one of the other penitential psalms that David confesses his sin and then goes on to talk about his enemies later in the psalm. Well, I think 
First of all, let's understand what he says about his enemies here. He says about them that they have persecuted his soul. And the word in the Hebrew for persecute is a word that can be translated pursue as well. The enemy has pursued my soul. The enemy wants to do him harm. The enemy seeks his life. The enemy wants to destroy him. In addition to that, he has crushed my life to the ground. That is, in his pursuit of me, the enemy has overtaken me and, as it were, trampled me underfoot. He has crushed me to the ground and left me broken and bleeding here on the ground. And he has left me so broken and bleeding that I am like one who has been long dead. He has made me dwell in darkness, that is, in the darkness of death and in the darkness of hell, like those who have long been dead. Now, what's the whole point of what David is saying? Well, I think, people of God, when you look at that, what David is saying here is that in the attack of his enemies, he has succumbed to temptation. That's the relationship between verses 2 and 3. And you can see this especially clearly, I think, if you consider some other psalms in which David also is under attack by his enemies, but responds to this attack in a completely different way. One great example of that is Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then later in that same psalm, verse 5, For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. You see him in the midst of his enemies' attack, exulting in the Lord. Of whom shall I be afraid? He's far from that here in Psalm 143, isn't he? You can't even imagine him saying in the context of this psalm, Of whom shall I be afraid? He is afraid. His enemies are crushing him to the ground. His enemies have trampled him and have made him dwell in darkness. He's filled with fears and doubts. He knows nothing at this point of the favor of his God. He has no confidence that the Lord will come to his help. He's uh, terrified. Terrified of his enemies and terrified because he has been caught in their snare. He has succumbed to their temptation and he has been spiritually broken by their attack. He has, in fact, in his response to their attack, sinned in losing his confidence in God. And it's because of that that he says, do not enter into judgment with your servant. You see this response of David, especially in verse 4. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me, my heart within me is distressed. I want to take a minute to look at the two words he uses to describe his spiritual condition here. He takes he says first that his spirit is overwhelmed. Now that's a word that really means enfeebled. I think that might be a, a good translation. My spirit is enfeebled. You can see the meaning of that word, I think, illustrated very well in Psalm 77, verse 3, and then going on to later parts of the psalm. He says in verse 3, I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed or enfeebled. But look what he says then in verse 7 and following. Will the Lord cast over, off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? That's what David is feeling here 
in Psalm 143. In Psalm 107, verse 5, we see this word used in a, in a kind of physical way that gives us another sense of this. Psalm 107, verse 5, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. The same word. Their soul was fainting because of their hunger and thirst. Or in Lamentations, chapter 2, verse 12, Lamentations 2, verse 12, we have uh, another kind of physical description of this state of being enfeebled or overwhelmed. There he says, they say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? And as they swoon, as they faint or are enfeebled like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. He's overwhelmed in that sense then that all the strength of his spirit is gone. He has no resources left to resist the enemy. He's crushed and broken. And the second word is equally strong. That word distressed might be better translated desolate. It's the word you find in Leviticus 26 in several places there. And every time it means the same thing. Leviticus 26 verse 22 is the first place. I will also send wild beasts among you. These are part of the curses of God on those who disobey his commandments. I will send wild beasts among you which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. That is, there will be no people to walk your highways because there won't be anybody left in the land. You will be few in number. In verse 31 again, I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. That is, there will be no one to live in your cities and to worship in your sanctuaries. And verse 32, I will bring the land to desolation and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. There will be nobody left in your land. And so when he says my heart is desolate, he means it's laid waste. There's no good left to him anymore in his heart. All the good has been taken away from him. You see how spiritually enfeebled and troubled then he is. His enemies have attacked him. He has succumbed to the temptations related to that attack of his enemies. And as a result of the succumbing to the temptations of fear and doubt of God, of God's faithfulness, of God's promises, of God's goodness, he's afraid. Afraid of God. Do not enter into judgment with your servant. I'm a sinner. A poor, weak, enfeebled sinner. He's like that publican in the temple, not daring to lift his eyes and beating his breast. I am a sinner. The rest of the psalm then is the way that David responds to this predicament, to this trouble of his heart and his spirit. What we have in the rest of the psalm, first of all in verses 5 and 6, is David encouraging himself. And then we have a whole series of petitions in verses 7 to 12, which uh, arise out of that encouragement which he gives himself and which are his response, his way of dealing with that essential problem described in verses 2 to 4, that he is afraid of the judgment of God. So let's look first at verses 5 and 6. What David does first to encourage himself to believe in the Lord is to remember the days of old and to meditate on all the Lord's works. 
So he looks back. He looks back at his own life. He looks back also at the history of God's people and he sees all the great and good things that the Lord has done for his people in the past. All the promises he has spoken, all the promises he has fulfilled, all the mighty deeds of deliverance he has accomplished. He looks at all those things and he really says to himself, to his own soul's soul, consider what God has done for you and for his people in the past. Remember it. It will help you in your pleasant, in your present tribulation. So he's encouraging himself from God's past works. And this relates directly to the faithfulness of God, of course. If God has been good to his people in the past, then surely, David says to himself, he will be good to us in the future. And he will be good to me now because he is faithful. But the second way he encourages himself is simply to call upon the Lord. I spread out my hands to you, he says. So in his trouble, he turns to the Lord and he says, Lord, I'm in need. I spread out my hands. That is, I lift up my palms to you. And my soul longs for you like a thirsty land. The comparison there is, of a desert that's dry and there's nothing green living there in that desert because there is no water for anything green to grow in it. And yet at certain times of the year, the uh, rain falls on the desert and suddenly the desert springs into life again. It soaks up the water that is falling upon it and green grows and flowers bloom and there's life all around again. And David says, my soul is like that thirsty land, that waterless land, dry and parched, with no life in it. My soul is longing for God as the thirsty land longs for the rain. Lord, let the rain of your grace fall on me. Then in verses 7 to 12, we have, as I said, a series of petitions that David makes. There's a whole variety of petitions here. There are two things I want to say about that in general. In the first place, I think we may divide these petitions into two groups. In verses 7 to 9, you have one group, and that group ends, notice, with a prayer against his enemies. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. Then in verses 10 to 12, you have another group, and that group also ends with a prayer against his enemies. In your mercy, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. So that's one thing. We're going to divide those petitions into two groups. But the other thing we have to notice from the very beginning here is that there's associated with almost every one of those petitions a kind of explanation for the petition. And I'll let you look at the different petitions here and how this works itself out through each separate verse. But let's just notice verse 7 as the, uh, to explain what I mean. Answer me speedily, O Lord, my spirit fails. That's his explanation. And again in the second part of that verse, do not hide your face from me, there's the petition, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. So, and if you go through the rest, you'll see that Almost always, with every one of these, he associates some kind of explanation of the petition. So we have to look at the petition, but we also have to look at what's tied to the petition. Let's begin with verse 7, then. Answer me speedily, O Lord, my spirit fails. That is a repetition of what he said in verse 1. Answer me in your faithfulness and in your righteousness. Very same word. But here he makes it more urgent because he adds that word speedily. Lord, come quickly. Answer me quickly because my need is desperate and immediate. Why? Because my spirit fails. And again, we have a very strong word here that David uses. It's a word that I think we can illustrate Again, by referring to its use in other connections. In Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, in Genesis 21, verse 15, you find this word. 
Deuteronomy 21, verse 15. This is about Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness after Sarah has driven them away. And Abraham has given to Hagar a bottle of water. And in verse 15, we read, And the water in the skin was used up. That's the same word we have in our psalm. My spirit is used up, he says. And then you have it again in uh, Genesis 41, verse 30, in a little bit different context. This is Joseph explaining the dreams of Pharaoh. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. The famine will deplete the land. There, There won't be anything left. And so what David is saying here is my spirit is totally exhausted. All its resources have been used up. There's nothing left to me anymore. If you do not come quickly to my help, I will certainly perish. And the second part of that verse then is the opposite side of this. When the Lord responds to David's prayers, there are two ways he can respond. On the one hand, he can answer him. On the other hand, he can hide his face. Do not hide your face from me. That is, he can refuse to hear. He can turn away from David as if David has, he has not heard David at all. Or as if he does not want to hear David. He hides his face from him and leaves him in his trouble. And again, David adds to this a a powerful explanation. Lest I be like those who go down into the pit. And the pit, of course, is the pit of destruction. It's hell itself. He says, if you don't answer me, I'm going to go down to destruction. My soul is in danger. I have no other source either to go to. And that's something that comes out especially in the following verses. In verse 8 then he says, Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning. Now that loving kindness is of course the mercy, the compassion, the love, the kindness of God towards his people. That covenant blessing that God gives to his people. And almost always in the Psalms you would read, show me your loving kindness. It's very striking that he says, let me hear your loving kindness. Let me hear it. Let me hear you speak to me, your word. He doesn't ask God to do anything except to speak. This is how we receive, primarily, how we receive the loving kindness of the Lord. Of course, he does many good things for us. And I hope that we can recall some of the good things he has done for us and how he answers our prayers. But what we want, especially, people of God, is to hear his loving kindness, to hear him say to us, I am your God. My love will hold you up. My arms are underneath you. I will take care of you. I am your father. I have spoken my promises and I will be faithful to my promises. That's what we want to hear. We we need that hearing, especially when we're in the midst of trouble as David was and see no way out, see no end to the trouble. What we need then is to hear the loving kindness of the Lord. And the way we hear it, of course, is to go to his word and to read about that loving kindness of the Lord to read about what he has done for his people, to read about who he is and what he has, uh, how he conducts himself towards us and what promises he has spoken and so on. Let me hear your loving kindness, not just as something objectively displayed to others and talked about to others, but let me hear it as something which is applicable to me, which is for me here and now in these circumstances. I need to know your loving kindness. But notice he also adds, in the morning. Now one of the commentators I read said about that, 
Well, David was praying in the evening, or perhaps he was praying at night on his bed, and he was asking God to answer him in the morning, to let him hear that loving kindness when he woke, or when the night was past and the morning had come. I don't think that's what David means at all. His prayer is far too urgent for him to wait. He doesn't want to wait. He needs immediate help. What he wants here is that the loving kindness of God come to him so that the day may dawn. He's in darkness. He's in darkness and he needs to see the light. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning that the light of your countenance shine again upon me. For in you do I trust. And this is something that we're going to see happening again and again in the next petitions. He keeps on referring back to this idea. In you I trust. I don't have any other source of help. I don't trust myself. My spirit fails. I don't trust in men. There is no salvation in man. I don't trust in other gods. There are no gods besides you. I trust in you. You are the only one to whom I can go. You have the words of eternal life. You are the resource for all those who are in need. And I put my trust in you. Hear me. Then he says in the second part of that verse 8, Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lift up my soul to you. David has left that narrow way which leads to life, and he's wandering in darkness. He's wandering far from that path, the way of God. And he doesn't know the way back. He can't find the path again by himself. He says to God, show me that way. Take me by the hand and lead me back to that way so that I can see it and know it. And so that I can walk there again. Why? Again, for I lift up my soul to you. I trust you I make my petition to you because I have no other to whom I can go. Then he concludes this part of his petitions with verse 9. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. Those enemies who were the cause of his trouble in the first place, who pursued his soul and crushed his life and made him dwell in darkness. Deliver me, he says, from them. In you, I take shelter. You are my refuge. You are my fortress. You are the shelter to which I go in the storm. And my enemies are all around. And they are oppressing and afflicted me. Afflicting me, I am going to you for my shelter. Hear me. Answer me. Be merciful to me. Take me into your fortress, into your shelter, so that I may be safe again. You see how this all relates then to the fact that he is so troubled and distressed spiritually, how his sins really have overwhelmed him. The fact that his enemies have pursued him is not the fundamental problem. It's the immediate cause of his problem. But the fundamental problem is that he has not found the right response to his enemies. He has not found that he can exalt in the Lord and say, of whom shall I be afraid? He's pleading with the Lord, therefore, to help him in the doubts and the fears and the lack of assurance and conviction in his own soul. Verses 10 and 12 kind of, in a way, repeat this same series of petitions without the answer me speedily that you find in verse 7. Verse 10 kind of picks up with the last line of verse 12. It's 
more or less the same kind of petition. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk, and verse 10, teach me to do your will. That is, teach me to obey your commandments, to walk in the way which you have appointed for me, by faith, by the power of your grace. You are the one and the only one who can teach me to do this. That word teach there is again, people of God, that word that we've talked about before, which means both to instruct and to discipline or to chasten. Combines those two ideas together, instruction through chastening. And David knows very well that when the Lord teaches him, it will not be just by the enlightenment of his mind, by the instruction that God gives, but that it will be also instruction which comes to him in the way of the chastening of the Lord. The Lord chastens those whom he loves. David's very familiar with that concept, and he knows. But he says, I'm willing to endure that chastening, because by that chastening, I will learn to do your will. But again, notice how he appeals to his God. For you are my God. He keeps on coming back to that in different ways. I I have no one else. You are my God. You have chosen me for yourself. You have taken me into your house. You have made me a part of your family. You have become my God. Not by my choice, but by your choice and by your action. I'm dependent, utterly dependent on you. Come to me now. Teach me to do your will. In the second part of that verse 10, he reverses the order of these elements. Notice that. In all the petitions prior to this, he's made the petition first and then given the explanation for it after. Here, he gives the explanation first and then makes the petition. Your spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. The land of uprightness is, of course, the land, first of all, where the upright God lives. And it is, in the second place, the land where the upright of heart live with him. David says, I'm not there. I'm in the land of death and darkness. Lead me back to that land of uprightness where I may dwell with you and with the upright of heart because your spirit is good. That's the Holy Spirit who is the uh, source of all the good that comes to us here in this world. He's the one who dwells in our hearts and brings to us all the blessings that God has in store for us. The Spirit is good. Lead me in the land of uprightness. Again, in verse 11, revive me, O Lord. That means make me live. The word revive to us can mean, I think, simply refresh me. Doesn't mean that. Means make me live. And in in the second part of that verse, bring my soul out of trouble. He's in death. He's in very great spiritual trouble. But notice again how he appeals to the character of God for your name's sake and for your righteousness' sake. For your name's sake means, people of God, do it because you are jealous for your name and for your glory in the world. Do it because you are the God who wants to be known as the I Am, the Lord, the Mighty One. Do it because you are the one who wants to be known in the world as the covenant God of his people. Do it to save your reputation. Do it to save your name from being blasphemed and dishonored by the enemies. Again, it's not to himself that he appeals. Do it for my sake. He says, do it for your sake. For your name's sake. And when he says, for your righteousness' sake, he means 
that it must be and it will be that the Lord answers him only in righteousness and that he must answer him to preserve that righteousness. What he's really saying here is, if you do not bring my soul out of trouble, your righteousness will fall to the ground. Your righteousness demands that you bring my soul out of trouble. So he's gone beyond verse 1 even, where he said, answer me in your righteousness. And now he's saying, for the sake of that righteousness, in order that you may preserve that righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And finally, two more petitions regarding the enemies in your mercy. That is, in your loving kindness, it's the same word as in verse 8, cut off my enemies and destroy all those who afflict my soul. Why? Because I am your servant. I am the one whom you called into your service. I am the one whom you appointed to serve your purposes and to do your work in the world. And now I'm in desperate trouble. I need your help. Come, or I will not be able to continue as your servant. Now let's take all that stuff about righteousness. We've talked about three different places in which the righteousness of God appears here. And this seems to be a very strange kind of thing for David to appeal to in this trouble. Answer me in your righteousness? For your righteousness' sake? Deliver my soul from trouble? How can he pray that? How can he ask that? How is God's righteousness bound up with David's deliverance? And how do we understand what seems to be the conflict between verses 1 and 2 where he says, answer me in your righteousness and then he says, no, 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 don't, I don't want anything to do with your righteousness. Do not enter into judgment with your servant for in your sight no one living is righteous. What's the resolution of that problem? people of God. Well, it's this. In verse 2, he considers himself as he stands by himself. But when he speaks of God's righteousness in verse 1 and in verse 11, he is not thinking of righteousness as the simple attribute of God's being. That is, that righteousness by which God deals with men always at all times. That righteousness which demands the punishment of sin and which will certainly destroy every sinner who stands in his presence. That's what David is thinking about in verse 2. But when he uses that word righteousness in verse 1 and again in verse 11, he's not thinking of that bare attribute of God as it's revealed in his law and the curses of the law and in the judgments of God on those who disobey his commandments. But he's thinking of it in the way that Martin Luther learned to think of that righteousness of God at the time of the Reformation. It's the righteousness of God as revealed in his word. It's the righteousness of God as revealed for David in the atoning sacrifices. It's the righteousness of God fundamentally as revealed in Jesus Christ. Answer me in your righteousness because he is your righteousness. For your righteousness sake, that is for his sake, bring my soul out of trouble. He is our righteousness. That's what the scriptures say. He is our righteousness. That's what David ultimately appeals to. That righteousness of God revealed in the atoning sacrifices appointed by God's law. 
And that's what he means also when he says, show me the way in which I should walk. Teach me to do your will. It's not just doing his will and obeying the 12, uh, the 10 commandments, but it's his will as it's revealed also in the command to make these atoning sacrifices. Those, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But David appeals to those sacrifices as the revelation of God's righteousness in the one who will come, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so when he says in verse 2, do not enter into judgment with your servant, God can say, I won't. God can give him the answer he wants. I will not enter into judgment with you because there is a lamb who has borne that judgment for you. So you see, people of God, how all of this ties together, this whole psalm ties together under that idea of righteousness, the righteousness of God given to us in Jesus Christ. And how in his desperation for help in the temptation into which he has fallen, David can say, enter not into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is justified. And know that God will give him an answer, a favorable answer. I will not enter into judgment with you. This is what we mean when we say, forgive us our debts. Do not enter into judgment with us. Blot out all those transgressions. Blot them out in your righteousness. Your righteousness cannot fail us. Because your righteousness does not change. If you have justified us in righteousness then we have a firm basis for believing that you will not enter into judgment with us. May God bless the proclamation of his word.